You're listening to CircuitCast with your host, Mark Amory. Hello and welcome to CircuitCast. My name is Mark Williams, stepping in for our regular host, Mark Amory. Today I'm at City Gallery Wellington, where currently installed is Iconography of Revolt, an exhibition which showcases some of the ways revolt and revolution have been pictured in art, film and elsewhere, from the Bolsheviks to the Black Panthers to Pussy Riot, from the Barricades to the Catwalk. One of the featured artists in the show is Belgian filmmaker Johan Grimontpré, who joins me now. Hello. You're showing two films here at City Gallery Wellington, uh-huh. made 20 years apart, Dial History, 1997, and Blue Orchids, 2017. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with Johan's work, Dial History presents television footage of a series of skyjackings from the 1960s onwards, and over the course of the film, we witness how the media erases all political meaning from this repeated gesture. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in Blue Orchids, you interview mostly two figures who have experienced the consequences of the arms industry, one an arms dealer, the other a journalist and a political prisoner. Do you think, uh, Johan, these works are 20 years apart, but they're both in this show. What do you think is the thread that maybe links these two works for you? Well, the, the big juncture would be, of course, 9-11, eh? which happened three years after nine, uh, Dial History came out. So, and, and it's sort of a premonition, I think, Dial History, uh, towards the end of the film. There's a trajectory also in the film, eh? but towards the end of the film, it sort of announces what's about to going to happen in the world. So people told me, ah, oh, nobody's hijacking anymore. Why am I making a film about hijacking? But then the, the reality confirmed the film. And so, but there's a trajectory in Dial History itself where you see in the 60s where there was still the, the figure of the rebel and the connection to the left or mm-hmm. mainly also the violent left like uh, groups like the Weather Underground or the Rota Armin fraction that actually went to study with, with uh, the Palestinian um, commandos in, in the Baca Valley. So there was a connection between the radical left and the figure of the rebel. And by, I think, towards sort of 75, 76, I think there was a big shift there mm-hmm. where the, with the counter-terrorist groups that started to storm the planes and a doctrine was adopted, a secret doctrine, which was shoot the terrorists on sight, one bullet in the heart, one bullet in the head, and don't give them any more screen time. Right. And so you see a big shift towards mid-70s and then towards the end of the 80s. Is this, I think for me there's a big shift, but that's also a bit of trajectory in Dal history that the, the figure of the rebel is out of the picture mm. and is replaced by suitcase bombs. And also state terrorism is a big part of the picture, although that has, has always been part of it. Because I think very often, you know, to, 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 to just name the big context, I think terrorism, I would say terrorism is like a fig leaf to hide the big shit underneath. Right. Because it sort of accommodates a bigger political spectacle. And I think... To frame the figure of the rebel, I think it's important to talk about that, you know, because as Howard Zinn says, you know, war is terrorism with a bigger budget. <laughs> yeah. So, but that trajectory isn't there in, within the whole history. And I would say um, maybe Blue Orchids maybe picks up with that moment where the figure of the rebel disappears and sort of the world also, we, we say, you know, towards the end of the 80s with the, with the Soviet Union collapsing in a world that is sort of in, 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 in disbalance, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if, when the nuclear holocaust was hanging above our heads and the, the world was clearly defined between East and West, 
Beginning in the 90s, that changes with the collapse of the Soviet Union. So there's a redefinition. You see that America, United States has to come to terms with its imaginary other, which is filled in by the figure of the alien, beginning of the, you know, the 90s, Independence Day. You have the X-Files. So that imaginary other is not filled in, and then clearly, bit by bit, is being defined by figures like Saddam Hussein. And so, you know, it's not anymore James Bond against, you know, the, the, the commie red spy, but suddenly it's, 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 you know, ISIS or, you know, it's the Arab figure has filled this in. And, and Blue so, Orchids. The and Blue Orchids picks up with that. Yeah, because the arms dealer points to the fact that, oh boy, the wall's collapsed. Where are we going to sell these arms to now? We need to invent new wars, new conflicts. Exactly. To uh, sustain this industry that sustains... Exactly. And what no better enemy than the anonymous enemy as the war on terror, he says. So we have to get rid of all this material, you know. <laughs> now that we all like, the defense industry goes on and on, and it's like the Cold War has never finished. They still keep it, and even more so, 9-11 made that the arms industry doubled. It literally doubled. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, since 9-11. And so Blue Orchids picks up with that. You have this one character, Chris Hedges, who basically lost his job by exposing lies. He, he, um, he was very critical of the invasion of Iraq and was very outspoken because of that and with warnings from the New York Times, but he said, no, I'm against it, and then he lost his job at the New York Times. So here we have a figure as a journalist, a war, former war correspondent for the New York Times, is exposing lies. The other guy, it's juxtaposed with, with a weapon dealer mm -hmm. who basically makes his, his money by selling lies and selling fear because that's what they do. So the arms dealer is not sort of somebody who would sort of be critical <laughs> or like write journalistic exposés. On the contrary, he would spin sort of fantasies in order to concoct a persona that actually he can be in dialogue with whatever people who are going to buy his arms. He's a deeply conflicted figure, isn't he? Exactly. I mean, he's you know, putting on so many lies. He has a South African accent. He's not a South African claims to have been in the South African Special Forces. He wasn't in the Special Forces. Um, and then he reads his poetry about witnessing these brutalities and he cries in front of the camera. Did you believe that? Or did you think it was a well, show? Well, we, we, we went with it because the first time we, you know, we were working on Shadow World. Mm -hmm. Maybe I have to contextualize a little bit what Blue Orcas grew out of. Because it's a spin-off from a longer film, which is a feature film, 94 Minutes, which came out in 2016. And sort of mainstream, PBS was a commissioning editor, so we went to a lot of TV channels and was also out in theater as a theatrical release. Though it's sometimes harder with, with a documentary to, to have a longer run with this sort of films. But this was uh, based on a book by uh, Andrew Feinstein, Member of Parliament under uh, Nelson Mandela, member of ANC, African National Council. And he exposed the weapon dealing, the corrupt weapon deal that was going on during the follow-up, you know, the, the, the successors of, of Nelson Mandela, Thabo Mbeka, Jacob Zuma, were involved heavily with a corrupt arms deal where British airspace system was involved and also Tony Blair. And we, we, we of course, this is a subject I wants to say in the shadows. And we didn't have any arms dealer. So here's an arms dealer that contacts us. <laughs> he said, I've read the book, you know, this book on the corruption of the global arms trade. You know, why am I not in the book? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, you know, having no weapon dealer in the film, of course we do have, you know, because 
you, you, you just said it, Adam Feinstein is a conflicting character, but he's not dissimilar of what our mainstream politics, politi politicians are about. Mm. You know, I don't know about New Zealand, but the United States, if you talk about our, our United Kingdom with weapons of mass destruction, it's full of lies. So it's not that politicians are exempt from lying. You know, it's, it's sometimes part of their narration, their storytelling. That's interesting. There's a lot of talk at the moment about uh, truth. But actually, right. I think um, what Blue Orchid suggests is that truth, who knows, but in the end, if there's one thing we learn, it's that lies are kind of unsustainable. They're unsustainable for all the people in the film. It seems that in the end, it's just they cannot front for a lie anymore. I was looking for something positive in the film because it's a deeply disturbing movie. And mm -hmm. in the end, I felt that maybe that was the shared human takeaway from that. Well, those both characters, you know, they start from the opposite spectrum. One exposing lies, one making his money or his, his life building out of lies. Mm. But they come very close together in the way they're both affected by this arms trade, in the way they suffer both from the same trauma. And so here we have Chris Hedges, who 20 years working in, as a war correspondent and seen the worst of what humanity is capable of, of doing to one another, starts talking about if you cannot connect to the other, you don't overcome that trauma. So literally he talks about, you know, love, or, or he cites Dostoevsky saying, you know, hell is the inability to love. And so by way of going to this whole detour, he comes back to talking about love. And then this both characters, Chris Hedges and also Ricardo Privetero, they cried. He was in tears and when he talked about his trauma, Chris Hedges, and Ricardo Privetera at the same time when he's reading out his diary, although we still question if this diary was not concocted as well. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but, but you see that humanity seeping through. Mm. So, you know, talking about post-truth, I, I always think this whole thing about post-truth is, is, is a big oxymoron. You know, it's the Nietzschean paradox of like, there's no such thing as truth. But is that a true statement? So it undermines itself that maybe either it's not a true statement then it doesn't make sense or if it's a true statement then it undermines itself right so my take on post-truth would be that maybe it's a device that's happening a bit in dial history also but also in blue orchids that you know i think truths like a joke for example wittgenstein would say uh, a joke can contain contradictions that's maybe closer to the truth that maybe Thomas Elsesser also, he had a talk about Blue Orchids and he, he talked about the, the, the strategy of performative contradiction, right. which actually sometimes you can pin down a politician that even if he keeps on lying, there's a sense where truth seeps through, through that performative contradiction. So I, I sometimes think that um, in that sense that one doesn't necessarily have to be straightforward, but that truth is maybe a bit more complex. Truth is also historical. What radical left believed, like what we see staged in Dal history, is maybe not necessarily true today. Right. So, so I think truth is, truth is also historical. Or things are being revealed when, when Palestinian hijacker, um, Palestinian hijacker Leila Khaled is hijacking plane, says, you know, well, for me, it's putting a truth out there that since we didn't have a country, I was claiming a plane and naming it Palestine because we don't have a country called Palestine. And so she's rewriting history. Yeah. Just as rewriting truth is happening to reveal, even if it's a very violent act, 
it sort of exposed nobody was killed at the time. Because we think about Lila Kalet and all those figures in Dal history that are staged in Dal history who have a face. If you look at it in retrospect through the 9-11 spectacles, they look, you know, we could call them terrorists. But in a sense, they were trying to, you know, expose something that was more horrible that was going on. She as a kid, seven-year-old kid, saw her, her friend being killed in the street in Haifa, where she lived, and then had to flee to southern Lebanon and then move to Amman. And so, you know, even those first hijackings, no people were being killed. It was sort of a, a touristic, you know, side tour. Definitely the Cuban hijackings. A lot of people just suddenly didn't have to go to work. <laughs> and then Castro would take them on a revolutionary tour and then foot the bill to the, to the airplane companies. But, you know, we have a different perspective of what that was, the violent left. Mm. And so, of course, once the Weather Underground started placing bombs, even interviews with the Weather Underground people said, you know, but what's going on in Vietnam is so horrible. And we, it's, it's been accommodated by this, this bigger political game. So, you know, the, even the political game is itself very violent. So their, their, their narration was that then we have to react also very violent. Very different than Satyagraha, what Gandhi was putting forward to, to reach independence from the Brits. <laughs> but, yeah, we and can go on and on about that because there was a big theme, non-violence, you know, who can protect non-violence? Maybe non-violence is the privileged of, of the powerful, which Franz Fanon says. Right. So how do you protect non-violence? It, it's, 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 it was at the crux of how we sort of were thinking what to do with Shadow World, exposing the arms trade, which is very violent utterly it causes a lot of havoc in the world. Dial history seems to be about the fact that uh, we don't really understand, or at least at the time we didn't understand the relationship between us and mass media and the mass distribution of images. And, you know, the film doesn't, does the film make any new images or is it just a reworking of archival material, isn't it? Well, there's a lot of home video movie that I shot. Everything in airports is something. This was the point of departure of the film, all this footage that I shot in airports. I was traveling a lot, studying in New York, mm -hmm. and the dear ones that lived in Belgium, and so always saying goodbye was a big part. So I, I thought, let's do a film about saying goodbye. And saying goodbye is so framed by, if you say goodbye at the airport, even at the time, it was all the security gates already in place, which happened in the 70s, eh? Before, you could just go close to the air, airplane. Nowadays, you know, it's even worse. Habeas Corpus has made that you board a plane, you've been controlled and searched uh, and labeled as a terrorist and proven not guilty even. It's even one step further. But you asked about the complicity of the media, mm. right? And I would agree, you know, uh, it's again what I already sketched before that, you know, even Lila Khaled, uh, as a hijacker, she was interviewed by British journalists and she had main prime time uh, uh, coverage on British television. And so that would never happen anymore uh, much later where, you know, this doctrine would be adopted that, you know, don't show coverage of the terrorists. And so it becomes more anonymous. But I have to say, for example, a big shift happens also in the 80s you had the big three TV stations, NBC, ABC, and CBS. But suddenly you had CNN that came about. And you have Ronald Reagan who's elected. The inauguration started with the release of the Iron Hostage crisis, uh, uh, Hostages that came home during the inauguration. 
But what not a lot of people know with the October surprise, it's called, that actually behind the, the scene, Reagan was reeling and dealing with, with the Iran regime and trying to actually make that those hostages would not be released before his inauguration. Uh-huh, right. And so here we have CNN, and the first program is already the complicity of the media in the spectacle of, of terrorism that actually is literally through Bush as uh, George Bush uh, Sr., who's his vice president, and who was head of CIA before, who actually set forth an agenda where actually terrorism was on the decline, but they put the fight of terrorism as a first thing on the agenda. Right. And you see what's happening, and this was still you know, framed within the, 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 the Cold War, where what's going on with Nicaragua, Honduras, and El Salvador, the, the, the Reagan administration pushing even dead squads uh, this was the Reagan administration directly involved with sort of um, wreaking havoc in Central America, which one could call terrorism. The dead squads were actually, you know, the, there was a democratically elected uh, government in Nicaragua, but the dead squads made that that was actually destroyed, all this politics. But you see what's happening in the New York Times is a hijack in 1985. This is on the, on the front page for six months, and mm -hmm. only one American is killed. And is killed by uh, the, the hijack was called Mohammed, but his family was killed in Baca Valley by a U.S. carrier called New Jersey. And this was there was a soldier, a GI, on the plane who was from New Jersey. And uh, the hijacker house, where are you from? Uh, New Jersey. And then he made the connection with New Jersey, the U.S. carrier that actually had shelled his village. And this was one uh, GI was singled out, but there was one person killed, but nobody talked the fact that the history of that uh, hijacker actually. But at the same time, 10,000 people are being killed in Central America, and it's a footnote in the New York Times. And so I think, you know, this whole spectacle of, of the terrorist spectacle is, is a way to actually accommodate, the, the terrorist spectacle accommodates a dirtier game underneath. Mm. And so that's definitely in the 80s, there's a big juncture there. It's interesting, I was thinking about your work in terms of the history of cinema and popular moving images. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, there's a great story from, I think, the 19th century where there's a film showing of a train entering a station and people are so terrified they run out of the cinema because they think the train is about to burst through the screen. And then Dial History is about how the apparatus has been used to sort of desensitise people to actually what is mm -hmm. happening on screen. Is there still hope for moving images as a political force we're dealing with the larger population? Sure, yeah, but there's not one answer to that. Eh? Right. Yeah. And also, I think it's a connection also, it's a question about technology. William Gibson wrote about when, when the first train uh, uh, departed, I think it was between, what was it, Liverpool and, and England, the first train called, uh, there was vertigo, although it was 17 miles, 17 miles per hour, there was a so-called vertigo. People were terrified from the, that technology. And so technology, I do think technology reshapes the way we sort of stand in the world or, or mediates, you know, with social media as well, you know, social media. And it could be very conflicting. Social media can open up where, you know, uh, there's so much more of a direct, maybe a direct democracy. But at the other hand, like with Facebook, and all this, you know, YouTube, uh, Google search, you name it, is that they disguise themselves under the commons as participatory democracy, but it's, it's, it's actually a masquerade because underneath mm. it's actually corporation who say, oh, your Gmail is for free, 
it's sort of a commons, it's sort of so-called participatory, but it's not at all. It's a disguised sort of upside-down twist of what, you know, truth again is, is about. But I do think, you know, very often technology can just be used for what was not meant. You know, the internet itself was, was developed by the, the defense as DARPANET, but then it became sort of when the World Wide Web was, was sort of created in, in CERN. I just saw the plaque. I was spending some time oh, in really? CERN. And, and sort of that made that sort of the way how people could stand and contact one another directly and, and not circumvent it. Even like with maybe, I don't know, I don't want to be too hopeful, but, you know, with, with, um, with cyber banking or, or blockchain, you know, there's a way where peer-to-peer uh, network comes into play where th there's, there's a sense where I think there's hope there for direct participatory democracy. You know, directly out of Shadow World, which was, you know, I'm still traumatized myself because it was plugging and, and, and researching of what the worst, uh, the worst of what humanity is capable of. That I was trying to, and we had a lot of dialogue about that, you know, we cannot just have corruption uh, evidence, corruption evidence after one another, we have to also like include some sort of where, you know, you can keep on critiquing the world, but where do we take it from there? And mm. so we interviewed a couple of people, Chris Hedges was part of that, but Michael Hart, who's a scholar who talks about multitude and also the, he calls it the common to make a difference between historical uh, uh, sort of trajectory of what the commons was. Perhaps it's a good point to talk about the distribution of your own work. I mean, you're obviously... Okay you know, very concerned about the social um, purpose of your of your work and what it illuminates. Um, how do you feel like the structures of the art world and the cinema or even the internet or whatever actually serve the distribution of your work? Right, 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 right. Well, for me, most importantly, it's about the storytelling. If it gets out in festivals or it depends also on the work, like uh, with, um, with Shadow World, it was... was sort of a mainstream sort of um, feature that went out on PBS, a theatrical release. But then that obstructs the fact that there's distributors and there's a bigger budget, so you ha your, your hands are more mm -hmm. tight and you have more constraints because I would love that Shadow will be dropped. Also, Andrew Feinstein would like that. It's actually immediately on, on social media because I think it would go viral. There's a lot of things that are being exposed there and I think it should go viral. But there's always the, the complexities of, of, you know, making a film and then... But maybe with a little bit of delay, uh, like just with Jeremy Scale, who made... He wrote a couple of books, Dirty Wars, did a whole investigation of Blackwater, mm -hmm. and then he made a, a film, Dirty War, and then it was a little bit in the theatre, and then it's actually... You could look, at, look, look it up and watch it for free on the internet. And I think that would be good if that would happen to Shadow World. But Dial History, you can also watch, you know, you don't have to come necessarily to the museum, although it's, I think it's sweet that the, 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 the projection makes it that it's a different experience, but it's also right. on the internet. So I sort of like that, that the social media, uh, again, it's sort of a commons. You know, there's a pot like my website uh, under my name, .be. Uh, you can watch a lot of the films for free, shorts, you know, and there's a little section of, of Blue Orcs. Blue Orcs not yet, but as soon as that has toured a bit, then mm. we will also, like, put it on social media. I like it, actually, that um, also all the books, all the published materials for free downloadable on my website. And I like that, actually. Because I see also it creates an audience, but that creates other possibilities. 
and you know I roam also a lot you know I, I, I teach a lot as well there's also the ac academic world so you get a lot of invitations and then that opens up the dialogue that creates more dialogue and then biopiracy uh, no not biopiracy that's another topic but uh, air piracy and, and a film like Dal History is about piracy and I think you know when one thinks about the commons you know I think piracy is an interesting topic as well because who are the big thieves you know why would a corporation own images that actually are collective memory mm. so sometimes when students ask me what should I do should I clear the archives I said if it's if it's a big studio I'd, I, I would say don't care because you know all these all these policies that are put in place to protect the big studios is actually at the detriment of, of our collective memory. And so I think it's good to make works also that precisely pirate. You know, even though history has been pirated a lot, you know. <laughs> it's funny, actually, there's, a, there's one image in there that was in a music video for a band I play in. Ah, okay. <laughs> well. you see. We had both taken from the same source. You see, yeah. Also, Adam Curtis, he recycled some of the Dial history in his uh, Power Nightmares, I believe. Uh -huh. Or, you know, people told me they got back from China, they saw a bootleg copy on the street that you could buy of Dial history. But I think, it's, I think I like that, actually. I'm reminded I had a conversation with a, um, uh, a Thai academic in Bangkok who teaches in London, and we're outside this massive mall where there was all these pirated movies and all this pirated software. Uh, 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 uh. And she said to me, you know, it's great here in Thailand because all the students, they can become politically empowered through seeing all this material. Exactly. And yeah. they also have the tools to craft a response as well. But, but it's true. There's also an economics huh, that is a reality. You know, mm. Why is it possible that all these big studios have the biggest budget like Titanic has... A budget of two hundred million dollars, and half of that is to make big billboards and trailers. You know, I could make a hundred films with that, or, or even more with that budget. So you cannot compete. So there's something about the economics where I also think the artist should be protected. When we showed, for example, Matthias Müller, colleague, artist filmmaker, in Documenta, we asked permission. So uh -huh. when it comes to piracy, there's two. I think there's another ethic also that if it go it goes towards, you know. You're part also of a network of filmmakers where you owe it that, you respect that. But when it comes to the bigger piracy, then I think it's good to be aware of the bigger context of, of who are the big thieves. So, same with our taxes. Eh? <laughs> why, why should most of the taxes in the United States, more than 50% goes to war making? Yeah. I, I, I would always, you know, this is a whole different discussion, but I would argue for participatory budgeting. Uh, you know, or what's should, that exactly? Participatory budgeting is like in a city like uh, Recife in Brazil, is that 20% of the taxes is decided by the population. Wow. So they decide that, you know, we want a hospital in this poor neighborhood or we want that. And you see that the drug crime went down, and it's a direct solution for a lot of stuff. And it doesn't have to be a lot, it could be 5%, it could be, of course, more. But, you know, of course, you could say, ah, if 50% of our taxes are stolen to make war, we could refuse our taxes. Or we could say 50% of our taxes we refuse to pay because that goes to war and I don't agree with that. But another way is to actually, through the political machinery, is trying to actually have that hold by participatory budgeting. As one, for example, a, a thing that could deal with the commons in a different way. Well, okay. Johan, thank you so much Alrighty. for dropping by today and sharing your thoughts with us. All righty. I uh, hope you enjoy the rest of your very brief time in Wellington and so your breakfast there. Yeah, it's, in the meantime, it's still hot. <laughs> You've been listening to Circuitcast. Thanks very much for joining us.
This episode of Circuit Cast was brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or any of your favourite podcatchers. For more, go to circuit.org.nz.